Jonah chapter 3 uh, from verse 4 to chapter 4 verse 4. And it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sock clothes, from greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw that they did, what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do, he would do to them and he did not do it. Chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, it, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And this is the word of the Lord. Have you ever regretted getting what you asked for? I can I hear some people laughing, so I'll take that as a yes. Uh, I could relate to this story that I read recently from a lady named Janice. She said, my folks and I tend to go to a local sub shop in town. It's a mom and pop place where uh, you walk up and they have just one big bin that has all the different condiments and toppings in it and you just, they ask you one at a time if you want each topping. And my dad decided he was tired of answering a dozen different questions about what he wanted on his sandwich. So he said, I'm just going to order one with everything. And he goes up, he orders his roast beef sandwich, and he says, I want one with everything. And the guy behind the counter started to say, are you sure? We have an awful lot of toppings. But dad was confident this was what he wanted. The guy behind filling out the sandwich decided, you know, maybe this guy is not really sure this is what he wants, so he tried him out on just a few condiments. What about shredded carrots? And dad had ordered a roast beef sandwich. That 
Didn't sound great, but dad was all the way in. Yes. Uh, so the counter sandwich artist asked uh, peanut butter, raisins. And at this point, dad is committed. Yes, yes. So at that point, the guy stops asking questions and he just starts putting every single thing on this sandwich. Dad got a roast beef sandwich with lettuce, tomato, spinach, cheese, green pepper, onion, mushroom, olives, pickles, banana peppers, sprouts, shredded carrot, half a dozen condiments, raisins, and peanut butter. And I asked my dad, do you think that thing is actually going to be any good to eat? And dad says, well, I don't know, but I was not going to ask the question about every single item. So we sit down, we eat our sandwiches, and dad said, you know, the peanut butter and raisins and sprouts were really not good. I guess I'll go back to picking ingredients one at a time. Do you enjoy hearing uh, those stories of what people call malicious compliance, uh, like I do? Yeah, if that's what you want, go for it. Any of you that have worked in retail know how wonderful it is when some difficult customer demands something and you know it's actually going to cost them more or slow down the process, but at this point you're like, fine, I will give you what you want. We stay up too late sometimes ourselves, though. We get caught up in stuff that's not good for us. Sometimes we ask for things that actually aren't what's best for us. And what if we really don't know what we ought to have? What if we end up being our own worst enemies? We complain, we criticize. We get angry too quickly. We let ourselves get manipulated by media outlets and political parties and uh, useless debates and celebrities and corporations. Ever find yourself getting into a dumb argument with your spouse or with someone online or with a friend that you know ultimately doesn't even really matter? Maybe you catch yourself saying something in, in a tone or with a volume that wasn't really necessary. And, and you step back and ever had a moment where you can realize there's something wrong and it's not with that person, it's actually with me. Ever had a moment where you realize, you know what, in this situation, I may not actually be the good guy. I might be part of the problem. Maybe I'm my own worst enemy here. That can be hard to face. And, and what do you do with that? Well, we've been going through this uh, look at Jonah, the world's worst missionary. And Jonah's story is sort of like a mirror reflecting a lot of what we are like. And it's not always a pretty reflection. And this whole book, and especially this section, is now a, a series of just twists and turns and surprises. The, the bad guys turn out to actually be the good guys, and the good guy turns out to be an angry jerk, and not even God does what we expect him to do. This book is challenging. It's challenging us about how we look at ourselves, about how we look at others, about how we look at life. And in chapter 1, you remember, God calls this prophet Jonah to go to an enemy nation, this nation of Assyria, the capital of Nineveh, and preach a message against it. But instead, Jonah runs the other way. 
And uh, God gets Jonah's attention. He sends a storm. He sends pagan sailors. He sends a miraculous fish to remind Jonah that God is still in charge. And in the belly of this fish, Jonah prays for God's forgiveness and rescue. God rescues him and has the fish spit Jonah up on land. And now Jonah has gone to the city of Nineveh. And now he's preached the worst sermon ever. A reluctant preacher with a message that he doesn't want to deliver to people that he doesn't like. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then, then something amazing happened. Tom pointed this out last week, but don't jump over this. Verse 5 in chapter 3, did you see that? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. That's amazing. That should like shock us. These Ninevites, remember, were evil, brutal, violent, hateful, wicked, sinful people. They delighted in brutality and oppression and violence. And fasting and putting on sackcloth or burlap. I mean, these were ancient signs of humility and grief and loss and mourning. And, and you notice then the king hears what's going on, and he gets up from his throne, takes off his royal robe, covers himself with sackcloth, and goes to sit down in the ashes, another sign of humility and brokenness. You can imagine, like the CEO of a hospital, he leaves his corner office, he takes off his suit coat, he goes down to housekeeping, and he sits in the soiled bed linens as a sign of his brokenness. I'm, I'm wrong. I've ruined everything. I've made a mess of it. From the lowest to the highest, there's this call for everyone, amazingly, even farm animals, to fast and to put on sackcloth and to call out to God. But that's not all. In verse 8, that each may turn from his wicked way and the violence which is in his hands. And that's what they do, amazingly. Do you see that in verse 10? God saw their deeds. They actually turned from their wickedness, from their evil. And this is important because God is reminding Jonah and he's reminding us that is what repentance looked like. They hear a word from God. They believe that it's true. They value what he says even when it challenges them, especially when it confronts them. But it's not just a mental assent. It's not just agreement. Yeah, that's true. They actually do something. They change their evil behavior. They stop doing evil. And they do what God calls them to do. They trust him. They obey him. Now, it's not a very good repentance. It's not a complete repentance. The name of Yahweh doesn't show up here. They don't start worshiping Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. They make no movement to become a part of God's covenant community. They don't express any interest in getting to know God's commandments or God's ways in order that they might know and follow him more fully. But it's not nothing either. This is a massive moral and societal transformation. And God honors this 
change of behavior, at least in them. Now, we don't know why the Ninevites didn't continue to follow God, but they don't, because we know historically from the Bible record that a generation or two later, the Assyrians invade Israel and destroy the whole northern kingdom. But their repentance, at least at this point, pleases God. You know, I came to faith through the ministry of a TV preacher that I realized later had some really bad doctrine on some important things. And I think the point here is that we have to realize God works in people's lives in ways that we don't always understand, in ways that we don't maybe like, in ways that don't make sense to us. God uses people and works in ways that we wouldn't do. And that should humble us. It should humble us in terms of our judgment of what God is doing and who he's working with and who he's working through. You know, I was uh, struck a while ago looking back through the, the first kind of big study Bible that I got when I became a believer. And all the verses I had highlighted and underlined about loving God's word and being teachable and being open to correction and loving discipline. And I realized, boy, that would be awesome if that was an accurate reflection of how much those things are actually true of me. But my underlining is a lot better than my living out my faith. The response of these pagans is is a message to me, to us, I think to welcome correction, to welcome feedback, to welcome even criticism about my attitudes, my excesses, my sins, my failures, my flaws. I should be listening for God's voice in the things that I hear from my spouse, my kids, my friends, my family, my coworkers, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet how often I can easily become defensive and quick to explain, and no, you don't understand, oh yeah, well, you do the same thing. There's none of this from these Ninevites of all people. And they had plenty of reason to criticize Israel for their sinless and godless behavior, but that's not there. It would have been easy for them to reject Jonah, reject his message. Who's he, an Israelite? Sometimes we can reject what God might be saying to us because it's coming from a boss we don't like or uh, someone underneath us that we may look down on or a coworker that we maybe don't want to be around, a difficult neighbor. The people of Nineveh were willing to hear God's correction through a despised Israelite. And we, we on this side of the cross especially have all the more reason to listen to the ultimate despised Israelite. Because Jesus went to the cross to take on himself the punishment for all our sins, for our wrong, for our wickedness, for our evil. And that means we don't have to live anymore for a reputation that we have in front of other people or trying to accomplish something that will make us feel good about ourselves. I'm no longer condemned. I'm no longer guilty for my sin if I trust in Christ. And now that makes it freeing for me to actually hear correction. Because my identity isn't wrapped up in how well I think I'm doing or what others think of me. It gives me a freedom to live with humility and 
correctability and teachability. So maybe our prayer is, as much as we read the Bible, can I ask God that the Bible would read me? That this word would really speak into my life and help me see what I need to see. The ways that I'm not like Jesus. These people cry out to God. They humble themselves. They're willing to hear a a hard, convicting word. They turn from their evil ways. And then the second surprising thing is not just that the Ninevites repent, but that God relents. The second surprising thing is that God relents from this judgment that he has said he's going to bring on Nineveh. In verse 10, when God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. He relented concerning the calamity that he had declared that he would bring on them. Now, for some of us, maybe that raises a a theological question. I, I thought God didn't change his mind. I mean, he says, am I a son of man that I say something and then don't do it? I am the God who declares it and then brings it to be. Can we count on God? Because he said he was going to do this, and, and now he's not. Well, how do we make sense of this? Here are a couple of things to consider. I liked what one commentator said. The Nineveh that God declared judgment on, the pagan, violent, hostile, brutal, hateful, wicked Nineveh, is not the Nineveh that's here in chapter 3. This is a peaceful, obedient, humble, loving, repentant Nineveh. And God didn't say anything about what he would do with that Nineveh. I think there's something to that, but I think there's also something going on here in the particular message that God gave to Jonah. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, there's, I think, a play on words or a deeper meaning going on here because that word that God gives to Jonah can mean destruction, it can mean it's overturned, it can mean it's turned upside down, there's some kind of a revolution that's going to happen. Nineveh is not what it was, and that is exactly what happened. Jonah was hoping that it meant fire and brimstone and toasted Ninevites, but God worked through Jonah's angry preaching even of his word to turn Nineveh upside down in a completely different way. Nineveh was changed. Jonah preached better than he knew. They are different people from the ones that Jonah was looking at in chapter 1. And can we believe that God can actually change people radically in that way? And look at people differently. Can we forgive and relent and see people from a different perspective like God does? Only five of us were left alive after the massacre, said Polly Shepard. There's a really good review in Christianity Today in the most recent issue of a documentary called Emmanuel about the shooting, the massacre that took place at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston when a 21-year-old white supremacist went in and killed nine African-American of our brothers and sisters at a prayer meeting. 
The shooter didn't randomly pick up a gun. He'd been steeped in a worldview, in, in a twisted, demented belief that somehow people with less melanin are greater and better and more than people with darker skin tone. A belief that is sadly woven through our whole history as a nation. And because he looked at people that way, he could not see them the way God sees them and took up a gun and killed nine of them. But hate did not get the last word. There were profound courtroom scenes of survivors of that shooting and family members of victims looking the shooter in the eye and telling him that they forgave him because of Jesus Christ. That's not normal. That's not natural. They were actually able to see the violent, hateful oppressor differently because of what God did in their hearts. The rest of the article is uh, amazing. In In the documentary, one pastor says, a group of people decided they were going to bear the weight of the wrong that they endured and still wish good to the wrongdoer. It's the highest form of love possible, a love that only Jesus Christ makes possible. Polly Shepard, who I mentioned earlier, admitted Reverend Thompson forgave easily. It wasn't so easy for me. It took me a while. But when I got there, I found out who God is. And I was reminded that I have to forgive over and over and over again because that's what God has done for me. Now, it doesn't mean that eliminates justice, the article goes on to say. Justice and compassion can live together. The shooter was sentenced to death. But the hearts of the people in that church were still to be reconciled to him and to want to see him redeemed and to spend eternity with this man through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. There's a Hebrew word in this chapter, that uh, this whole book that comes up over and over again, the word ra'ah, which is wickedness or evil or wrong. We see it in chapter 1 where God says the, the wickedness, the evil of Nineveh has come up from before me. And the sailors in the boat in the storm cast lots to see who has brought this evil, this ra'ah on us. And why have you, Jonah, brought this wickedness on us? And here in chapter 3, the king of Nineveh calls for the people to lay aside their evil. And then in verse 10, when God sees that they have turned from their evil, he relents from the ra'ah, the disaster that he was preparing for them. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, it was a great evil to Jonah, literally. It was ra'ah that God forgave their evil. And Jonah confesses, I am so angry because you are a God who relents from disaster, from ra'ah. Does that grab you? That's really the third big surprise here, Jonah's resentment. Jonah resents 
that God is kind and patient. We've had hints of it before, but now the curtain is really pulled back and we get to see what's going on in Jonah's heart and in his life. Look in verse 2. Isn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? That's why I tried to forestall what you were doing, run away to Tarshish. And he gives this great picture of who God is. I know that you are gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and overflowing with loving kindness and you relent concerning calamity. And I hate it. I hate it that you're that way, God, because you're doing it to those people. You're doing it to those people that I hate. And it's wrong. You see, the Ninevites have come to see God in exactly the way that Jonah describes him. And that makes him so angry. How can you do that, God? What an amazing, amazing, shocking, this sounds crazy, right? How could we say that? How could God's people respond that way? I mean, this is the way God is with his own people. It's the whole story of the book of Judges, right? The people do something foolish and stupid and evil, and God oppresses them with a foreign army, and they cry out to God, and he relents of the evil that he brought on them. And he sends a judge, and the people worship God, and then rinse, lather, repeat all over again. Over and over and over, God is patient and compassionate and gracious, to just like he's been to Jonah. He's in the belly of the fish, and, and Jonah's saying, God, you've taken my life down to the, the edge of death, but salvation belongs to you, Yahweh. You've rescued me. Just don't rescue those people. Don't save them, God. And because Jonah will not stand for seeing God to do good to the Ninevites, he has choked off God's goodness for himself. Do you see that? How he's full of anger and bitterness and resentment, and it's eating him up from the inside. If you're going to save those people, God, if you're going to do that, I don't want anything to do with you. I'd rather die. I think that's what was happening in chapter 1 when he tells the sailors to throw him over the side of the boat. If you're going to use me to, to preach to the Ninevites, I forget it. I'm out of here. I'd rather die than see you potentially do good to those people. This is what God says about himself in Ezekiel 18. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Rather instead that they would turn from their evil and live. Jonah would take a lot of pleasure in the death of those wicked Ninevites. Who are those people for you? You notice how this whole section is a parallel to chapter 1 with Jonah and the pagan sailors how the pagans look more like believers than God's prophet. They're responsive to God's word and to God's actions. They cry out to him and they offer sacrifices and, and they humble themselves before him and they fear and worship and obey him. And Jonah's the exact opposite of all of these things. He has become his own worst enemy, even as God's child. He hates that God is merciful to sinners, even though he is one. He resents that God is patient 
with wicked people, even though God has been patient with him. He doesn't want to see Nineveh filled with peace and joy and love through faith and repentance and obedience, and so he has no peace or joy or love. You know, I have uh, always enjoyed uh, fantasy and science fiction stories. They've, they've fascinated me, especially when they explore things like, uh, you know, what if scenarios? What if time travel? What if there are alternate parallel universes to, to the ones we know? And I thought maybe I was getting a taste of that recently when I received an email from Jeff Schultz. Jeff, how are you? I need a favor from you. Please email me back as soon as possible. Hope to hear from you soon. Regards, Jeff Schultz. Apparently, alternate universe Jeff Schultz has figured out how to write shorter emails than the ones I tend to compose. He's also apparently in need of cash because that's the subject line, right? Now, obviously, that's a scam email. Just a reminder, folks, always check the return address. Company mail 6298 at gmail.com is probably not actually me. But seriously, what if you could get a message from future you or alternate universe you? Would it be kind of cool? Like to get some special insight? Maybe, maybe future Jeff could tell me how to invest better than current Jeff has ever been able to. <laughs> All right, Amelia. But what if, what if future me isn't actually any better than current me? What if alternate Jeff is just another version of Jeff, is just as liable to suggest something as foolish and sinful and proud and self-serving as current Jeff might tend to choose at times? What if we actually could hear from someone that was better than just future me or alternate me? What if I heard from ultimate? What if we heard from the God who really knows who really is good, who really has our best interests at heart and gives us better insight and advice than we could ever give ourselves? Would you listen to the God who would speak to you that way? Because we realize how liable we are to fool ourselves and be our own worst enemies. One way we can figure out where God might be speaking is to look at our reflection in the kinds of situations we see Jonah in here. Where is God speaking to me about something that I may need to change in my heart or my life because it's not in line with his will and his purposes? I thought about this as I was looking at this passage when is the last time that I was really just deeply humbled and broken over my sin? Not beating myself up, not condemning myself, but, but just like these Ninevites, that I could just strip off all the outward adornment and everything that I think makes me look attractive and, and just come face to face with the reality of what I can be like sometimes. And, and it just brings me down to a place of desperately needing God. Where am I quick to anger and slow to forgive like Jonah? Who is it or what is it that makes me resentful? 
What people would I have a hard time being happy to see God forgive and bring into his kingdom? God's mercy to so-called undeserving people highlights where Jonah's doctrine doesn't line up with his heart and his life. He's angry and resentful because God has now threatened something that Jonah loves more than God's mission and God's heart. And it seems like it's, in Jonah's case, ethnic and national identity, love for country, love for his own people's prosperity and security and safety made him say, God, if you're going to threaten that, I don't want any part of you. There's a lot of that going around. Not from one side or the other, but people all over the place are stoking all kinds of fears about those people are trying to ruin everything that's good and decent and right in this country. And, and we're circling the drain and we need to be angry and, and, and we need to fight back against those people and where they want to take us. And we can't imagine God doing good to them or through them because we don't want to see God do good to them because we've bought into the way this world frames things and what this world values. Sometimes it's you know, not national, it's not politics, it's really personal. It's something maybe that God has done to you in your past, some hurt, maybe some profound disappointment or maybe a fear about what God might do if he takes something away from you or, or denies something that you really, really, really need to have happen. And like Jonah, we can say, God, if, if that's what it's about, forget it. And we end up filled with anxiety and fear and resentment and bitterness and despair. But the way out, you see, the way out is to come back to who God is for us in Jesus Christ. That it's all sheer, undeserved grace. It's goodness that we have not earned and we cannot hold. God himself becomes our treasure. He is our security. He is our identity. And when that happens, nothing can shake that. Nothing can threaten it. Nothing can ever take that away from us. And that gives us a security and then also a, a love and a gratitude that makes us want other people to experience it because we know we haven't deserved it. It doesn't matter that they don't, quote, deserve it either. We want more people to get in on the undeserved goodness that we have known. And then we live out of that promise that if God has given us his son, he will with him give us all things, all things for our ultimate good. Don't be your own worst enemy. Let God humble you and challenge you and change you and give you his peace and his joy. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I confess how easy it is for me at times to look a lot like Jonah angry, resentful, impatient, not liking what you're doing or who you're doing it through or the blessings that you're giving to people that I think don't deserve it or the hard things that maybe you're doing in my life and that make me bitter. 
Father, thank you for your patience, your grace, your faithful loving kindness to bad missionaries like Jonah and me and us. Thank you, Father. Lord, help us to walk with you, to trust you, to let you speak to us and change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.